frighten us by telling us the facts, 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 the facts. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. We must apply ourselves to our task with the same resolution, the same sense of urgency, the same spirit of patriotism and sacrifice as we would show were we at war. For 91.3 FM, WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware, I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on April 24th, 2017, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Jonathan updates us on disastrous Republican environmental policy, and I discuss the climate change state of emergency. All that is coming up. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me again in studio this week is Jonathan Cohn. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to be talking about the environment and climate on this week's episode. Uh, I want to start off by mentioning a pretty important milestone that happened this week, which is that carbon dioxide parts per million in the atmosphere reached 410 parts per million. And uh, that is uh, up from last year's record-breaking milestone of 400 parts per million uh, at Mauna Loa Observatory. Um, this is both of these are the same location, so um, it, this is one of the premier places of measuring the atmospheric carbon dioxide. Uh, 400 parts per million, uh, th- 350 is basically the upper limit for a comfortable sort of climate. 400 parts per million is the irreversible threshold. 410 is past the irreversible threshold (laughs) all right so jonathan uh what's been happening from the united states federal government with regard to the environment and climate recently i'm sure they're hard at work fixing this crisis (laughs) sorry for my laughter well one thing in terms of thinking of this front today where the the u.s senate just confirmed a climate denier to be the secretary of agriculture uh former governor sonny purdue of georgia uh, and a very large vote of 87 to 11 with the with one president who the president vote being his cousin who's a senator from Georgia any notable uh uh dems against both of Massachusetts the senators voted voted no as did Bernie Sanders Kirsten Gillibrand both of New Jersey's Ron Wyden did both of Rhode Island's Richard Blumenthal uh Kamala Harris so for the most part, people from the party's left flank, left flank, and some who voted against most of his nominees. But it was 80, with an eighty-seven to eleven vote. It's a pretty broad. So climate support. denier with a checkered past, uh, dealing with one of the most sensitive economic sectors, agriculture, with regard to climate change. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, other. Because there's other plenty of other unrelated things that are bad about him as well. Yeah, but that and that's particularly with. 
given how a lot of emissions, people often don't think of agriculture when they think about climate change, but a lot of emissions do come from the agricultural sector. Yep. Whether it's not just in terms of like you do have the fact that cows do emit methane, but just all of the kind of the infrastructure and yep. involved in, in agriculture, and the tilling and everything. There's yeah. there's a lot of issues. Um, and and Governor Purdue, former Governor Purdue, sort of presided over Georgia during one of its most severe climate related incidents, which yeah. was well, it, I should be careful about saying that just because it was a drought situation. There was major water shortages. Uh, it's generally a, ca- a case study with regard to drought in the United States in the modern recent era. Uh, although it is worth noting again that some of that is about where the population was located and kind of development decisions and things like yeah. that. So it's not entirely related to like climate, but it for sure has to be at least partially related. Yeah. Uh, so uh, beyond Purdue being confirmed to the cabinet, what else has been yeah, going so on? Yeah. So that's so just to speak to to that general issue that there have been a number of terrible nominees running federal federal agencies. We haven't seen all of what they've been doing they've done yet since many of them have just been confirmed in the past couple of months. But you have uh, Scott Pruitt, who's running the EPA, who's the former attorney general of Oklahoma, who who you, had it as kind of a badge of honor about how often he was suing the EPA and the federal government under Obama, and who's somebody who fundamentally does not believe in environmental protection. And I know I've seen a number of stories recently about just how, basically how depressed a number of employees at the EPA are, just because their boss doesn't believe in the fundament, like the fundamental mission of the agency. And you have something kind of fitting in this regard is that in the EPA's Office of Science and Technology, a few months ago, the word science was eliminated from their mission statement. Oh, boy. Which is reflective of an administration-wide phenomenon. Although, although a lot of... Although the job isn't what he thought it was, Rick Perry is still terrible as for the Department of Energy. He's, I think I remember the New York Times have reported before that when he was approached for Secretary of Energy, he thought it was just an ambassador to promote the fossil fuel industry globally. The biggest thing responsibility is managing the nuclear arsenal, but the Department of Energy also does see a lot of energy research. And that's somewhere that he's he does not believe in climate change and is very gung ho about fossil fuel exploration and, and, and research around that, which is something that he'll have he'll have a say over. And then even you have you have Ryan Zinke, who's in charge of the Department of Interior and has been a large proponent of expanded uh, kind of oil and gas drilling. And then even those who might not be, I don't know if they're explicitly denying climate change, but they're not people who are going to do anything about it. Where you have somebody, let's say, like Elaine Chow, running the Secretary, Department of Transportation, and transportation infrastructure will play a key role in how in actually addressing climate change. Nikki Haley, who's the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., who's not going to help advance climate, kind of international climate. Like Nor- Norrell Rex Tillerson, who's the secretary of state and a former uh, CEO, CEO of, of Exxon. Exxon. Any updates on the Paris Agreement front? The, the, so there had been a, there had been reports that there was going to be like an, a meeting with people in the Trump administration to discuss whether or not they were going to formally get the, bring the U.S. out of the Paris agreement but then that meeting ended up being abruptly canceled it, it to some extent it just seems like the, the main fact is that the u.s isn't actually going to comply with any pledges that it had made that and i think one thing that you've seen recently that it it, it might seem strange at first glance that you have a number of let's say heavy fossil fuel emitters saying well, no we want to stay in the paris agreement to me, that seems like they might just be f- afraid of, let's say, the EU imposing trade, okay, 
trade penalties on the u.s yeah i mean it's partly a combination of it wasn't that strict of a deal yeah, it, but it's also uh that i think it's the market uncertainty question which gets yeah. raised a lot by kind of business and conservative figures and that sort of thing and it's usually to try to avoid taxes or whatever like they'll just make up you know oh i don't want this policy because it'll create yeah. market uncertainty but like to a certain point you know when you're in the oil and gas industry and you have to make decisions yeah. on where to invest in you know uh like refinery construction and transportation systems and yeah. just the drilling itself and what wells are going to be profitable and not like you do want to have a good sense of where things are going and if you made all your decisions based on the assumption that uh you know that the obama system was going to continue Continue. under clinton yeah like you may have made investments as long as five years out or whatever you know yeah. and then it's it's you know if it's if it's a situation where like the dakota access pipeline got reversed after basically a matter of weeks essentially you know that, yeah. that obama took one decision and then trump immediately was going to reverse that then you don't change your plans but if you were planning stuff say in 2015 or early 2016 for things you know that yeah. wouldn't come online till 2019 or 2020 i would guess i'm not an expert but i would guess yeah. that you would probably want just to maintain the level of continuity and again that's a pledge you're comfortable making if the agreement is not that stringent to begin with. Yeah, because like as I know, the text of the agreement doesn't even mention fossil fuels, if I remember correctly. And so that there are a number of these comp kind of companies, industries had been actively involved in lobbying and pushing for the legislation, pushing for the not legislation for the text of the agreement, uh, kind of to shape it to be more modest in its in its goals. And that's one thing that since they had a seat at that table, and you kind of can expect you're not always going to have Donald Trump as president. And so, as you noted, the investments in energy infrastructure aren't short-term things. So you do want, you, you'll be thinking about what you're doing for five years, 10 years, 15 years. So it does make sense to act, want a certain degree of certainty, especially because other countries are going to be at least in theory complying. So the, the agreement will be going forward, at least as far as we know. <laughs> so, Rather than like, rather than, uh, there could be a cascade effect if the U.S. were to leave, uh, but that's its own issue. But going on to other stuff from what's going on in the federal government, one thing that, one thing that, so in terms of the few things that the Senate has actually done, other than confirming nominees and a and a round of a budget voterama in the beginning of the session uh, related to the Affordable Care Act, has been has been using what's called the Congressional Review Act to repeal late term of Obama-era regulations. And the Congressional Review Act was something passed in the 90s. It was passed after Repul after the kind of the Gingrich Revolution took over. And it was broadly, the, the bill that it was a part of, it was, let's say, the, it was the Contract of America Implementation Act, or some name akin to that, that had Contract of America in it, passed the Senate, I think, by, I believe by voice vote, although there was a romp of Democrats who opposed it in the House. I know that Senator Sanders was one of them. And part of that was the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to repeal regulations by simple majority of votes as long as it's within a certain number of days from when they entered the federal register. And that's one thing that Congress has taken to, because it's one part of, since some things that Obama had, like repealing the Affordable Care Act is not as easy as they thought it was, but repealing some rules from the Obama, regula from the Obama administration has been quite easy for them. And two of them on the climate front, on kind of or environmental front, really, that 
is you have the stream protection rule, which I believe I mentioned on a prior show. It's not, say, a direct climate thing, but it interfaces with the fossil fuel industries being kind of unchecked. That's where they can dump coal in the streams or whatever, or the the remnants of the mountain they blew up. Yeah, yeah, coal slurry. They can dump that into rivers. So you have that rule was overturned. And there was also the other one that got signed. The House passed one rule repeal that hasn't been taken up by the Senate. I had checked this earlier today because I was wondering if it had been signed and passed in the Senate. The House did pass one uh, on the methane waste rule, which was just trying to get natural have oil and natural gas drillers to kind of requiring them to reduce methane emissions and to have better reporting and to use the best equipment that they have available that passed the house it hasn't been taken up by the senate yet although the epa did itself eliminate kind of, kind of eliminate one rule uh, kind of reporting regulation on methane emissions i don't believe it was the same one but it's taking an axe at the same uh, thing. The other, in terms of rule repeal related to climate, was the repeal of the Bureau of Land Management's quote-unquote planning 2.0 rule, which had to do with the way that BLM's kind of land land use decisions make, where the planning 2.0 required them to use like the best available science in their decision making on things like climate change and biodiversity as well as to kind of have a very broad stakeholder engagement approach. So you are talking to local communities. If, if it's an area where you have a tribal possess, uh, presence, you are talking with the indigenous community there. And that was also appealed because using the best available science is not something that Republicans care about in land use decisions. There have been other things passed by the House, but that are unlikely to be taken up by the Senate, just given the fact that it is more difficult to get legislation through the Senate. Um, things can always end up finding their way into an omnibus bill, but many similar bills have died in the House when they passed, because they've passed these in the past. This includes such things as the EPA Science Advisory Board Reform Act, which would allow up to 90% of the EPA Science Advisory Board to come from from private sector scientists, people who work at, the people who would say work at Exxon, as well as requiring them to kind of Embrace all possible possible views on an issue. So, like, to allow, basically, in a way that like allowing junk science into things. So, oh boy, was the purpose of that. Well, and then you had the honest and open new EPA scientific like scientific treatment act, which another whenever I say whenever Republicans start talking about transparency, you should watch out because it's often not very good uh and that one was about preventing the federal government from using peer-reviewed research because the the premise of that bill was that it's a problem that if so many many forms of peer-reviewed research particularly on things connected to public on public health that some of the data might not be replicable because if you're getting industry trade secrets or if you're getting access to patient information you can't directly duplicate replicate that's that study with that you can't access that data it's not publicly available mm-hmm. and so they wanted to prevent any decision making based on data that is not immediately accessible and then directly replicable when that's a lot of what public health decisions decision making will be based on because a lot of those industries don't want to just make the put their trade secrets online and basically what they i would guess is what they want to do is take this data 
that's publicly available or whatever, and then just manipulate it however they need to to come up with a competing study based off the same data set yeah. and say, look, we came to opposite conclusions. Well, either that or just block them from doing any any type of rulemaking at all, which is kind of the easier solution. And many of the things... Republicans often like to talk about the inefficiencies of government bureaucracy, but one of their standard things, and whenever they have any bill related to the EPA, it's creating more kind of paperwork for the EPA to have to fill out so that they have to spend their time on that and rather rather than doing their job. They had also passed uh, other bills that are kind of attacking federal regulations like the Scrub Act, which was creating a nine-person, I believe it was a nine-person unelected commission to go through and eliminate federal regulations because uh, they don't want no scrubs exactly well i was like as i like to say it's that they, that the house didn't listen to tlc that said uh they don't want they don't want no scrubs and they passed a scrub always listen to tlc uh and then <laughs> the house had also passed bills attacking class action lawsuits uh which obviously will interface with issues related to environmental protection, especially when it comes to public health. Yeah, I think that's been a huge tactic, basically, in these situations where, you know, some big polluter poisoned the air or water or ground Mm -hmm. or whatever near some neighborhood or something, and no one does anything about it. You get a class action suit, that's at least something, and then they're going to make that harder, basically. Yeah, so the the two things that the House had passed, and these these likely won't get through the Senate, but it still shows you what the House wants to do and what all these... uh, was You had one which was called the Fairness and Class Action uh, Lawsuit Act, which would make it so that you can't have a class action lawsuit unless the exact injury... the injuries in question are exactly the same. So if I got... Let's say if there was, let's say, an injury and I hurt my neck and somebody else hurt his arm. Sorry, it's not the same thing. You can't have a lot. You so can't be the... if you grow a third arm from the pollution, but I grow a third eye. I, sorry, it's not the same. It is basically what, Republic, what congressional Republicans want to say. And then there's also the House had also passed what's called the what they call the Innocent Party Protection Act, which was basically making it and enabling corporate polluters to choose where they want the cases to be cases to be tried, oh. so they can move into let's say a jurisdiction shopping exactly, so they can basically make it more expensive for the people bringing a lawsuit against them and kind of get on more favorable terms. Yeah, make it hard for the people to get to the trials and hopefully get a judge that's sympathetic to your industry. Exactly, which that's true geographically. That sometimes there are judges that are more sympathetic <laughs> so, than other, yeah, yeah. So that's normally that they have. It's kind of the high standards that for like the, the defendant has to prove that you need to move jurisdictions, but they're just trying to make it very easy for them to change, to move it up to a federal jurisdiction. So the, as I noted, these things aren't likely to be picked up in the Senate unless they get somehow thrown into an omnibus bill. But it still does show what the peop- what Republicans want. And if they were able to, in some doomsday scenario, manage to have like a 60 votes in the and the Senate in the future would be on the horizon. But even with the Congress being at least somewhat limited in what they can do, there have been a lot of terrible things coming out of kind of the administration itself. Yeah. 
Uh, briefly, though, I was just thinking, you know, the, you were mentioning about how it's, it is still more difficult to get things through the Senate, even when you have a majority. And of course, that recently, uh, unfortunately, has environmental consequences as well, that Neil Gorsuch got confirmed yes. by the Supreme Court. And one of the things that happened there was Republicans, quote unquote, eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. Yeah. I am someone who agrees with the view that it was effectively eliminated in 2005, because if you make an agreement that says no one can use it or else it will go away, then it has already gone away. Yeah. You know, and and you can look at the details of that agreement that was made back then and realize, oh, it basically doesn't exist anymore. Like it it exists in principle, but there's no objective standard of like what qualifies as sufficient cause to filibuster. And if such a cause existed, it would probably be the case where even the majority wouldn't back the person, you know, like a Harriet Myers or something where they're just not qualified by any definition and no one likes them, you know, um, but but not to get too far off track no, but, on that. But, uh, that but that's a definite point. Just in terms of, of course, such as confirmation having having significant environmental yeah, ramifications. Yeah, that's that's a that's a huge huge one. Just because um, a lot of we will circle back to yeah, that later in the episode. And I think. that would actually just even the issue of the courts and with kind of environmental issues. It, a lot of environmental progress has come through the courts. And right. one thing I was just going to surely mention is that the part of the reason why Trump can't immediately eliminate the clean power plan. Uh, from the Obama administration, which were the regulations on it, kind of on existing uh, power plants. You have the kind of the one on new rules for new power plants, ones for existing power plants. Was that it? It came from a uh, Supreme Court ruling of Massachusetts versus EPA. Yeah, that where, they had to do something on yeah, they, they had carbon a, dioxide yeah, and global warming, treating yeah. it as a pollutant. Um, and, and then so there the was EPA also had... there was also in the eight eight justice interim period there was a decision basically affirming the clean power plan yeah, i think so you know and they may try to go and overturn that but still you're, like you said there is that earlier precedent precedent and um, so that and so what you end up having is so there are some things that trump can do like immediately of overturning rules and there are others that it, it it's just kind of going to be a slow burdensome process where they probably won't inf- they'll have to be sued to even partially enforce something because that's where as well as the fact of like understaffing if you kind of cut the funding to agencies it'll weaken their ability to enforce legislation and they just don't really care to defend things in in court but that's what will happen so he'll have to rewrite the some the claim like you can't just flat out like snap your fingers get rid of the clean power plan by the by like kind of a stroke of a pen uh to, to mix metaphors there but uh that They'll, they'll probably rewrite it in a very weak and pointless way so it doesn't accomplish anything. And then there are a number of other things that, that Trump, over the past couple of months, has expressed interest in rolling back, but that will have to go through the federal rulemaking process again rather than being directly eliminated. Things like the, the calculation of the social cost of carbon, which is used in, the, in, in policymaking. The Republicans have been opposed to it for a long time. It's not something they can immediately say, we're not going to do this anymore, but they can reduce, they can just choose a much lower number in the assessment when talking about how, what the kind of, the cost of carbon pollution ends up being. Also in terms of thing, they'll also, it'll be a kind of somewhat of a long-term process for what the administration ends up doing with Obama's fuel efficiency standards. It's one of the main climate accomplishment, related accomplishments of Obama's first term, which was requiring car manufacturers to have an average of was it 50, to reach 50 an average of 54.5 miles per gallon across their fleet by 2025 
which is partly an issue of like if they don't meet those standards then it makes them uncompetitive in other countries actually yeah. even those standards arguably do because they basically have to come up with a model that complies with uh, Chinese and European fuel yeah. efficiency standards in order to sell in those markets, and at the moment, even that standard doesn't meet those. Yeah. So, so, so it's. Some... I, I mean, I think what's going to happen though is they're going to be more emissions cheating scandals. Yeah. You know, that's that's the solution the industry's going to try to take on a lot of that. Yeah, and like obviously we can't really trust the Trump administration to crack down on. Yeah, I don't think the National Highway and Transportation Safety Administration <laughs> or the uh, you know, EPA are really going to be uh carefully checking to make sure that there hasn't been blatant lying about the safety or emissions of vehicles right. like, yeah. Then you also have in terms of other rules that the Trump administration is starting the process of rolling back, although it's process is the WOTUS rule. Uh, the Waters of the United States rule from the Obama administration, which was expanding the purview of the Clean Water Act, kind of in determining what counts as the waters of the United States versus kind of the territorial dispute there. And that kind of expanded Clean Water Act uh, purview to two, two million miles of streams and 20 million miles of wetlands. And the Trump administration wants to try to roll that back. Although, because like, I, I would wouldn't expect them to have the most, let's say, if inclusive and open process in the federal rulemaking, but they do have to put it through a process, whereas some things Trump has been able to do by kind of signing a piece of paper, such as where kind of he repealed Obama's moratorium on new coal, kind of new coal leases. I don't think it was, I can't remember if it also applied to other fossil, uh, fossil fuels, but I know it was particularly with coal mining on public land, on federal lands. So he limited that. He instructed all federal agencies to try to remove whatever barriers that currently exist to expanded fossil fuel production. I think also last year there was something about like no offshore drilling in the Atlantic or whatever in the Arctic regions. Like he declared a yeah. bunch of areas to be national monuments and stuff like that and then just off zoned a bunch of other stuff. I don't know which parts of those are reversible. I think that's actually yeah, up think... for debate. Um, like legally, there's yeah, some debate over that. Kind of... Um, but that, I mean, that's so frustrating to me because I remember in 2010 when out of nowhere, you know, the, uh, president Obama's like, Hey guys, we're going to like, think about doing offshore drilling in like off of the coast of Virginia, Virginia. or whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was working on campaigns in Delaware and, and Carper for some reason backed it, whatever. And then, you know, Carney and Coons like immediately were opposed to it, you know, and they were, they weren't in office at that point. They were running, um, and 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 then the you know the of course the awful thing about it too was that if Obama had somehow been delayed on that announcement by a few weeks, then Deepwater Horizon would have exploded and he wouldn't have proposed it. Like yeah. it just and it was it was a whole pointless thing. And then at the end of the administration to be like, haha, J.K. Never mind. Not only are oh, yeah. we not drilling there, but we're gonna try to legally prevent anyone yeah, from yeah. ever drilling in those places. And it was like that's what you should have done, done earlier. There was no the... reason to do that right before the midterms. Like what? Which is kind of the unfortunate thing, how a lot of Obama's climate legacy... So, like, what Trump is trying to do is Trump is trying to eliminate what climate legacy existed from the Obama administration to the best of his ability. The, but the problem is that even Obama's climate legacy, it was, it was very insufficient. It was very late. Because, you know, like, the big climate accomplishment of the first term was the, was the fuel efficiency standards. Yeah. That the attempt of getting legislation through Congress, even as it was watered down throughout, it didn't go anywhere. 
There was some good stuff. Like, I liked Lisa Jackson as the EP administrator, but there's not like that was doing anything particularly revolutionary compared to like what we need to actually do on climate change. And so a lot of the stuff, despite the fact that that court ruling that I noted before Massachusetts versus EPA did require them to treat carbon dioxide as a pollutant, that was in 2007. It was, uh, that it was late late bush right that it took obama into a second term to actually issue an issue a regulation one of the other major things particularly given the activism that had been around those was trump's revival of the keystone pipeline and the dakota access pipeline that obama had kind of put the dakota access pipeline on hold basically he never formally say vetoed it but it was not going forward if you're not viewed as an activist win, but the type of activist win that where you celebrate and you keep pushing, which is what was always something good to do when fighting for any cause. But Trump, the fan of pipelines that he is, uh, has kind of renewed both. They will probably there will be court action on both of those again, particularly because there are land disputes going there. But they have the backing of the administration now with the Keystone Pipeline has the backing of the Canadian government as well because Justin Trudeau is very much a fan of fossil fuel exploration right. expansion. Currently, if Congress doesn't pass something by the end of the week, they'll have a government shutdown. Part of that has to do with the fact that there's no, been no budget passed yet. Uh, in Trump's proposed budget, he wants to cut EPA funding by 30% and have the funding for kind of enforcement of the Clean Water Act, got the Energy Star program, which is a big for kind of energy efficiency in many household and office goods. Not all of these things will end up going through. It's not, you'll have some pushback from what counts as a moderate Republican to the, the how deep these cuts are. But it shows what, it's a framing of the debate so that it allows Republicans to get a lot, things that are a lot deeper and a lot more damaging than they might have otherwise. All right, so these have been the proposals of what the Republicans uh, are getting done and want to get done on this issue in the complete wrong direction. When we return from our break from ArsenalForDemocracy.com and WVUD, we'll be talking about sort of what comes next in general, uh, especially in light of that new emissions milestone. So stick around. Democracy. You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey, and still in studio with me is Jonathan Cohn. We've been talking earlier this uh, past half hour or so about what the Republicans and the Trump administration have been doing terrible things uh, on environmental issues or attempting to do. Uh, we did talk a little bit uh, in that segment about the courts and the unfortunate reality that Neil Gorsuch is now on the Supreme Court, and that will adversely affect the situation on the environmental front, and he's a lifetime appointment who's very right-wing. Uh, you know, supposedly he's been good on some public lands decisions. I was not aware of that until I read some essentially propaganda stuff that had been put out by, uh, you know, people, publicists trying to spread the like base of support for his confirmation. Um, they got like the National American Indian Congress and some groups like that, I think, to say that he was a good pick because he had been good on some tribal and, and public lands issues. I'm not denying that, like, if they say it, then fine, but that he's not, in general, he's not going to be good on mm -hmm. this issue. 
Um, and that's unfortunate, you know, and then there's a hundred or so uh, lower court positions that are going to be filled by Trump right off the bat. Those are already vacant. Those are presumably going to be filled with just really terrible people from a climate perspective. And again, we have just hit, as we're recording this at the end of April 2017, we have just hit that 510 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is 10 parts per million higher than can be tolerated uh, from the you know irreversible point. Um, I had argued last year, especially when I was running for governor's council, which is the body in Massachusetts that confirms state judges, I had said, you know, we need to be making an abortion level litmus test of the climate issue, uh, your understanding of it, your willingness to rule based on science, et cetera, because we are out of options and the courts can actually act faster in a lot of ways than the rest of the machinery mm -hmm. of government. If there were the political will, sure, the rest of the government could probably do a lot of stuff. And as we've also seen, the courts by themselves cannot necessarily automatically get stuff through by fiat because if they made a decision under George W. Bush's second term and didn't get implemented by the Obama administration and only kind of got implemented you know, in his second mm -hmm. term, that shows that there are limitations to that strategy. Yeah. That strategy is now essentially out the window, I think. Any environmental decisions that we get from here on out are going to be basically luck of the draw, like random occurrence decisions that either happen at the lower court and don't get to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. or we get really lucky for some reason at the Supreme Court. Um, again, we have reached the point of no return from a climate change perspective. At this point, uh, although we need to take significant action to prevent the warming from getting, you know, even worse if than like a status quo course of action, um, it is going to continue getting worse on its own regardless because of the decisions that were made previously and, you know, runaway effects that we get, uh, especially in the Arctic with the release of methane, things like that. Uh, ocean, ocean acidification, these things are going to continue to get very bad and there will need to be in addition to, you know, efficiency and renewables and blah, 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 that we would have to be pursuing anyway to try to, you know, control the situation. There's going to have to be remediation efforts. I'm not an expert on those. I don't know that much about them. So I can't really comment on that. The thing that I've been thinking about and really turning over in my mind over and over and over again uh, over the past several days is sort of a much, much bigger extension of that, you know, kind of controversial position that I had outlined saying that, you know, judges should be taking unilateral action essentially on cases uh, to advance the climate action front. And this was certainly something that some people thought was a little bit out there when I was articulating it last year. Um, but we are in a very, very bad position right now where any any climate action, you know, it, we're way past any best case scenarios, any kind of OK scenarios, any kind of OK scenarios have to be dealt with during these four years or eight years, certainly. And the thing that I keep thinking about and turning over in my mind is this idea that Essentially, we have borrowed, this is not a concept that I came up with, this is things that other people, especially in developing nations, have argued, that you've borrowed the capacity of emerging markets uh, to, to, to pollute, so their ability to develop is now severely constrained from a perspective of mitigating climate emissions. Um, and also we've borrowed from future generations, we've borrowed from you know, current generations in places like Mozambique in place yeah. where there's drought conditions causing refugee problems. Um, you know, uh, Bangladesh, we're looking at imminently 20 million people being displaced because most of them live in low lying population centers. 
most of human civilization is built in coastal areas along rivers and in floodplains and places like that because they needed the shipping access or they needed the fertile farmlands or what have you. We're looking at a very imminent catastrophe. This is not a, this is happening in 50 years. This is not a, this is happening in 10 years. This is a, this is happening right now issue. But we've also borrowed from future generations and, you know, our own futures, our generation's future within this lifetime. And if you think about it from this borrowing concept, the thing that really comes to mind is the other major form of sovereign borrowing, which is public national debt of countries and how we've handled that so very, very differently around the world for quite a long time, but also especially in the last, you know, 15 or so years that, you know, we're basically foreclosing on countries if they aren't paying the debts off at a certain way or they aren't paying it fast enough or whatever, even if they're totally bankrupt and their economic systems are collapsing and they need help. They need grants, basically. They don't need loans. They certainly, if they're getting loans, it needs to be like 30-year loans or something. It, it's not, you know, pay it back in five years in this tranche or whatever. And, the you know, Argentina or Greece or Italy or wherever, Italy is the example that I use a lot because it's so sort of flagrant of how things were handled that you had the government, the elected government resign from office. The president appoints this economist from the EU, Mario Monti, to be the prime minister. First, he has to appoint him as a senator for life so that he can even be somewhere in the government to be able to be the prime minister. And then they appoint him as the prime minister. And his sole mandate is to enact the reforms that the European Central Bank and the IMF and whoever else want imposed in order for creditors to get their money back. And this was the austerity government that was put in. It was an emergency government, essentially, operating with emergency mandates. They've been It's a constitutional coup. They've been imposing this on country after country after country for what is fundamentally ones and zeros somewhere in a computer. It's yeah. not, it's real to the people that it affects, but it's not real from the perspective of the creditors. None of these people are going to be out on the street because they didn't get their loan money back, mm -hmm. you know, at the IMF or the European Central Bank or the U.S. Federal Reserve or whatever. People are going to be out on the street because of the cuts that are being imposed mm -hmm. to programs or the mass layoffs that are being forced through as various reforms. People are going to be suffering because health services were cut back or welfare was restricted or uh, unemployment benefits were curtailed. These austerity emergency governments are being imposed for something that's fundamentally not an emergency, yeah. right? It's all arbitrary. It's all arbitrary public debt. Yeah, maybe it needs to be paid back eventually. I guess you could make that argument. I'm not going to get into the semantics of that right now, but it doesn't need to be repaid right now. No one's, there's no global financial collapse that happens because it doesn't get repaid right now. What is real and what is happening right now is the climate change situation. And we've borrowed immensely. All these countries have borrowed immensely from their own futures, from everyone's futures. They've borrowed each other's, without permission, each other's capacity for emissions at all. And we're in a situation now where if we treated the climate change situation and the greenhouse gas emission situation the way that we treat these public debt defaults in developing or struggling developed 
uh, economies, if we treated it that way, then all of these developed nations, China, the United States, everybody, whoever, any of these major emitters would be under emergency governments at this point. And the craziest part about that to me is that the people you know, who are really fringe deniers of climate change kept on saying like, this is all an excuse to impose one world government <laughs> or, you know, they're going to take away our golf courses with black helicopters from the United Nations in order to save water, like things like that. They had all these Population. conspiracy theories about how, you know, that, that this was all a hoax in order to engineer this like catastrophic situation in which you had to have an emergency coup situation. And the reality is that we're now staring down the barrel of a situation where the democratic process basically failed to handle this in most countries. And then there's the countries like China that aren't really following a democratic yeah. process on this at all. The processes that exist failed to grapple with this situation. And I don't know what the plan is from here, but I feel like a lot of those conspiracy theorists are going to get proven correct fundamentally because the effects are already here. Like, the odds of a country like Bangladesh going into emergency law, I mean, they already have instability mm -hmm. issues and things like that, but the odds of them not going into military dictatorship or something like that, or just complete failed state status, is not great. Like, there's going to be emergencies that are escalating everywhere, and stuff's going to be just, like, melting down. And the United States is like gonna still be kind of struggling along and like dealing like pretending it's not happening but you're gonna have stuff falling off into the ocean you're gonna have these storm surges and these floods you're gonna have situations like new orleans and katrina happening again and again and again it's gonna be harder and harder to ignore it you're gonna have water shortage issues you're gonna have all sorts of problems i don't know like what like what not that I, like obviously we're not talking climate dictatorship of the proletariat here but like what where is the like urgency to match the austerity style governance it's obviously an issue of capitalism and everything yeah but... so i was just going to note one thing that that your point but just looking into think talking about the debt cri the debt crises so to speak in europe and other places it just reminded me of how the response that you see among let's say the creditor class in europe is actually quite it shows a short termism that you also end up seeing in a lot of climate-related issues as well, because their goal, let's say, with the country of Greece is to extract as much wealth of, out of Greece as they can, as quickly as possible. Because if they want their debts to be paid back well in a sustainable manner, the goal would be to get Greece's economy to grow, to rebound. You'd be investing in the economy so that you'd have people employed, etc. But that's not really what they've been doing. They've been just doing fire sales of public assets and just trying to basically pull as much money out of Greece as they can for themselves as quickly as possible. That tends to be what happens in these in cases of debt crises where investors really aren't interested in kind of a sustainable pay, like a sustainable payment that comes from a country then being able to like bring itself up to the point where it can pay debts. They're not rebuilding way. Greece. They're just getting their money Exactly. Back. And it, it kind of has that similar logic of in terms of when it comes to resource extraction of getting out everything without much of an attention toward like a future sustainability. And it just made me think of the kind of the, the I problematic just, yeah. mindset that exists. No, I agree. I I don't know what happens from here. And, I you know, like obviously there's some of this is a 
is a capitalism issue fundamentally. Capitalism does not seem well-equipped to handle the current situation, in large part because basically what the United States ideally needs to be doing right now is the entire oil and gas and coal extraction industries have to be nationalized and then spun off into a semi-independent entity that basically cannot pay any money into the federal coffers so that there's zero budgetary dependence Mm -hmm. on that royalty money. And then all of that money has to be reinvested that you continue to extract has to be reinvested in getting off of it. Mm -hmm. And they're, they don't want to do that. I mean, obviously that's no, that's not even on the horizon for the Democrats, let alone the Republicans. If you had the austerity equivalent on climate change, they would be pursuing energy sector reforms, transportation reforms, efficiency requirements, you know, require buildings to have this, that, and the other thing. You would be, you know, passing all of these edicts, essentially. You would be passing keep it in the ground laws that say no new pipelines ever again, no new oil wells ever again. You would be restricting all these things. If people are saying, oh, the battery technology is not there, you would say, well, it has to get there because this is the timeline that we're on. We're recognizing that we're at 410 parts per million. This is what we have to deal with and they just none of this is happening no one's pursuing it if they introduce a bill then they're just like well i introduced it and i'm done like it's not going anywhere so i'm not going to pursue it i'm not going to raise it in the public consciousness i'm not going to make this a priority i'm not going to make this the defining issue for 2018 nothing it's not none of it's going anywhere they're not doing anything and that would never happen if you were in an austerity, you know, yeah. emergency government situation for dealing with reducing the public debt by changing the compensation structures and labor requirements and right yeah. to fire and things like that. That's the reality of the level of action that needs to happen right now is that all of these fossil fuel assets have to be controlled by an in- independent nonprofit entity of some kind that is answerable to these public policy goals and is managing the exit from these Mm -hmm. sectors basically and you know i mean like i worry too you know like places like alaska they've got the permanent fund and that's a problem too because it's like okay yeah they write a check that's like here's your check from the oil industry be a shame if that stopped Uh, mm -hmm. you know and you know they do that in norway too a lot of stuff is funded through the sovereign wealth fund associated with the oil and gas extraction from the north sea that creates its own other set of problems um yeah we end up having a lot which is where like norway has a fairly good let's say welfare state compared to the u.s but a lot it's funded by right and lies on oil that's not sustainable none of this is sustainable None of it's working and there's no, there's no, there's no plan, but there's also no urgency. That's, that's the thing that's like got me trapped in this. What is happening and why is no one freaking out about They are working on those, you know, day-to-day material issues, but I'm also just watching this giant thing coming at us that's happening right now. 20 million people in one country that will be imminently displaced in the very near term. And there's just no action. There's no that, one cares it kind of about speaks it. To the fact of one thing that's particularly concerning when when thinking about issues of climate refugees, because kind of thinking of the issue of people being displaced because of climate change, is given the migration the crises that are happening now, particularly because of conflict and civil war in the Middle East and North Africa is the world is not handling it well. No. The U.S. Is, does not, even under Obama, despite much of his liberal rhetoric, the U.S. was not taking many refugees. 
Countries Fíjate. like Germany are going into like nuclear meltdown over dealing with a million people coming in one year. Oh boy, guess what happens next? Because you didn't do anything. They they just they borrowed. That's the problem. It's all a borrowing yeah. thing. They well, they're... Bar they're just like, well, no, I don't have to worry about it. And the, and the 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 lack of urgency. People will say Obama did try on this this and that issue, whatever. And it's like, no, he said that he was gonna solve this. You know, and get a treaty or something, like mm -hmm. a binding treaty, and they didn't do it. They didn't get a cap and trade bill. They didn't get anything. July 22nd, 2010, Harry Reid couldn't even get a basically, I think it was similar to what ended up being the executive climate power plan. Yeah. But, like, he couldn't, he just was like, no, I don't even want to bring it to a vote. Yeah. That wasn't even a cap and trade thing. That was the, like, weakest possible thing, and Obama didn't push for that. Obama no. didn't push for anything. Well, you know, he's better than the alternatives and was dealing with the hand that he was dealt. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The scientific reality of the carbon parts per million does not answer to whether or not, oh, he didn't have the cooperation of the Republicans or whatever. I don't care. Yeah. None of, like, well, we because, have, we have presidents, we have senators, we have governors, representatives. Everybody is just wandering around talking about Russia or North Korea or whatever. None of this has any relevance to anything. It's not even close to the scale of this. This is a serious total emergency. They're not doing anything. They're not talking about it. We've got this terrible governor in Massachusetts. His administration yeah, yeah. actively sabotaging the environmental departments in Massachusetts, making people's lives miserable, firing people for political whatever. So, of course, don't be political if you're a scientist in the government in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. You know, we had unprecedented drought emergencies last mm -hmm. year, and then we had almost nothing happen over the winter. So most of the state is still in very bad shape water-wise. And, and we're in like a part of the country that does very well on the waterfront. We're in a part yeah. of the country that has a lot of water and can count on having a lot of water. And we're still like, oops, drought, 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 drought. Not going to do anything. We're just going to wander around doing absolutely nothing. And then we also have just, just thinking in terms of our of our state here where even the Democrats in the legislature who have supermajorities in both house really aren't pushing the legislation needed where they're not pushing any anything. legislation. Yeah. yeah Cause in, in so far as stuff happens, like where the Senate had a decent energy bill last session, it wasn't going to go anywhere in the house. So not, so nothing happens out of there. One thing that uh, points you were noting before just reminded me of to kind of bring in my day job into this at the place where I worked, the TELUS Institute had a history of working with scenario planning. And it just reminded me of, because with some of their scenario planning efforts had arisen out of people who thought that the UN's, the Brundtland Report, which was from the UN in the late 80s, where the sustainable development as kind of a concept was becoming a thing. Real, viewing that as fundamentally insufficient. And we're kind of tracing out different paths that the world could take based on the present. So you have the kind of terminology, you have three different scenario classes and six different variants of, let's say, of the, the great transitions, the conventional worlds, and barbarization. So like a conventional worlds is, so you have, it can be in two paths. One would be like market forces, which is like things continue as largely they are of the kind of the path of neoliberal globalization and of country, developing countries trying to emulate the U.S. and con the U.S. and Europe in their patterns. And somehow because of like greened market forces, things are able to take out, which is a, for sure, which man. is like an unreliable 
uh, which, which is very wishful thinking. Uh, kind of a policy reform scenario, another variant of let's say, a conventional world, is like the UN vision of where you have your policymakers, your bureaucrats, your enlightened wing of business, and your NGOs all come together and you have legis- kind of bureaucratic, technocratic legislation that makes everything happen. Which, I, I, again, it kind of doesn't seem like that's that there's no will, political will for that. So you have those of like, assuming that the future can continue largely as it is, unchanged, but right. So then you would have the, given that that's very, that's wishful thinking for the most part, that like a kind of a policy form scenario could get you to where you need to be, but there doesn't seem to be the political will to do that. If things fall apart, then you have the barbarization scenarios of let's say the fortress world, of the global apartheid scenarios of like your dictatorships, of, of the, the kind of things arising from the migration crises where suddenly you have the, let's say, so if Mad Europe were to, Fury Road. Yeah, it's like if Europe decides that they want to haul out, haul, kind of completely block off, and, which is kind of what you're seeing in places yeah. right now, right? Because with any, with scenarios in any way that they always all exist at the same time in, some, in different different scales. Then you, then a, a breakdown of like the complete societal collapse. And then the kind of other class was the kind of the more positive visions of one kind of it was kind of eco-communalism, which was kind of like the localist alternative that you, you that you'll you'll hear some in environmental sectors of kind of like the smallest beautiful type people who kind of big on say local kind of local economies and using kind of downscaling as a way toward getting a sustainable and then what was then called like the new sustainable plat a paradigm or kind of more commonly called the great transition was to try to have a kind of a, having like a, a global movement led kind of drive to have a, a future rooted in sort of individual well-being global solidarity and ecological resilience of some type of desirable future that gets people to have kind of helps create the political will that a technocratic vision will fundamentally not be able to provide but that's fine with that because it's just in terms of uh, kind of what you're talking about before just in terms of thinking about the various paths that the, the world could currently take and how the grim ones do often seem more likely, but you do also have competing forces at any given time pushing in different directions and the need to so. push against them. doesn't really feel like there's competing forces over here right now. I mean, look how much work it took to get protests to accomplish anything with Obama and then like realize that Trump is just this like weird immovable force. And I'm so furious like about the... The people doing the March for Science with signs like, think of the polar bears or polar bear lives matter, which is offensive on its face. (laughs) Um, But like, you don't get it. It's not about polar bears. They could all die. Not great, but that's not relevant to the fact that millions of human beings are going to die. Many of them in our own country. Yeah, because that's, well, the one issue that that I I had with the March for Science, I think the people involved were we're very well meaning with that is that it's you are displacing earth day which is and a march for science is very much of a different thing from the march for environmental protection yeah. or march for climate action i thought it was originally going to be a march for like against the epa cuts Cause, or something like that and then it was just like whatever it's this other thing yeah because anyway. it's if you because science itself has no inherent say moral balance that it can be used for good it can be used for evil and that's but they say the history of warfare shows you the various ways that science can be used for evil. And so the, this, the important thing is the need to use science for the public interest, which is not just an ambiguous, kind of a broad, abstract march for science. It would be talking about specific uses of science. Or even if just like scientific, re- if you want to talk about sci- cu- protesting cuts to scientific research funding, that's at least specific. It doesn't really 
compel a broad number of people necessarily, but at least you're being speci- being specific rather Instead than I'm just supporting. Like, I'm right and I know stuff, which is what anyway. Uh, I will just leave you with the uh, words of Nate's protest poster because he's not here this week, but I know he's listening. Google Murray Bookchin. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here this week. Thanks for having me on. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email AFDRadio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from ArsenalForDemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at ArsenalForDemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night. Thank you.